Doug Storm. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to a special 90-minute interchange, Entertainment in Action. We're opening with Alfie's theme from the Sonny Rollins soundtrack album to the 1966 film starring Michael Caine. We're going to let you come up with the reason why. Our show today is in two parts. Part one is Listen Liberal. Assistant producer Rob Schoon sat down in our studio for a chat with Thomas Frank, authored the best-selling What's the Matter with Kansas, and most recently, Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Our focus for this segment is on the professional liberal political class and its failure in the 2016 election. One of the most qualified presidential candidates in history lost to one of the least qualified presidential candidates in history. How did that happen? Part two is Songs of Inaction. This is the second installment of our series with Rasul Mowat on the sounds of resistance. This time on songs that are part of and critique of entertainment activism, often promising a status quo inaction, often against the songs and the artists' purported intentions. And it's our spring fun drive, Stand with WFHB and Interchange. As I speak, we're having a listening party at Farm Bloomington from 5 to 8 p.m. featuring the products of our local craft distillery, Cardinal Spirits. It's a fundraiser event, eat and drink and be generous. It's a listening party. Interchange is being broadcast in the restaurant from 5.30 to 7. We've got a lot to do, so let's get to it. Historian and best-selling author of What's the Matter with Kansas?, Thomas Frank came to Bloomington on March 24th for an event sponsored by the Democrats for Monroe Monroe County, promoting the paperback release of his latest attempt at diagnosing our decades-long liberal malaise and ineptitude in the Democratic Party. While he was here, he stopped in to chat with Interchange assistant producer Rob Schoon. What follows is only a selection of a longer conversation that will air at a later date. Frank makes plain that the political classes in Washington have no interest in changing their ways, and it's with this in mind that he wanted to travel to the heartland, speaking to local communities about the problems of party politics. This selection begins with a review of Bill Clinton's successes, Republican governance in Democratic rappers. It takes a Democrat to undo Democratic policies. Um, so let's go into the Clintons, uh, Hillary and Bill. Uh, you talk about Bill Clinton a lot in your book and about things the only a Democrat could do, uh, like free trade, all this yeah. middle-of-the-road economic policy yeah. and, uh, and consensus, which seems to be something that has, has been branded for not trying – to do anything on the left. Yeah. Well, there was a, a one of the, the quotes that I found in the course of researching Listen Liberal. It was really, really choice, and it, it is the epitaph for the entire Clinton era. And it was a, a man – Bill Clinton had a plan for privatizing Social Security, and he, he, he would have gotten it done had his last few years – not been mired in scandal right. with the Monica Lewinsky affair. <laughs> he would have he would have gotten Social Security some form of privatization uh, done, and one of his supporters was saying, "It takes a Democrat to undo these, you know, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt programs, these New Deal programs. It takes a Democrat, and that's kind of that is the whole story of Bill Clinton. That it, it you know, Reagan 
when we look back at the, the long history of the conservative turn or neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it, whatever the word is that you want to call it, Reagan is often thought to be the primary villain. He started – Reagan and Thatcher, they started it in the early 80s. But in fact, it was Bill Clinton that got uh, the vast majority of it done. It was the Democrats that got it done. The, the, it's the Democrats that got NAFTA passed, you know, the free trade agreements. Uh, it's the Democrats that deregulated Wall Street. I mean Reagan mm. tried. He couldn't do it. Clinton got it done. Right. Uh, it's the Democrats that, that ended welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Democrats that got the austerity budget, the balanced budget in the 90s. I'm leaving one out. What is it? Oh, the great crime, the great crackdown, you know, mass incarceration. Yeah. That's Bill Clinton did that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is – the man has a, has a lot to answer for. And by the way, every one of the things I just mentioned, and these were his great achievements as president according to his biographers. These are the great things. He did a lot of little things that were, that were okay. Mm-hmm. These were the big things, the momentous things. Every single one of them was a Republican proposal, uh, and it takes a, it takes a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and now we have the Republicans trying to uh, pass and being very messy about it. Uh, some sort of whatever they're doing to with healthcare. Yeah, healthcare. Well, by the time this airs, that's going to be done, I suppose. But it, it is ironic other, that yeah. it is ironic that uh, when Barack Obama went to get. I don't. I don't judge him as harshly as Bill Clinton. I think with Barack Obama, you mainly see a failure of nerve, uh, failure of imagination, an obsession with consensus. Yes, that, that that's always that's a constant with Washington Democrats. The sort of the species of Democrat we have in Washington, the obsession with consensus. Obama's term was the grand bargain, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that, I think that that's his main failing. Uh, Bill Clinton's were very different, but uh, with with the. You know, with Obamacare, he basically took a Republican proposal and got it done over the you know the Republicans fighting him at every step right. on their own proposal. Well, it's the most Republican extraordinary thing, anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Well, I wanted to get into the kind of the the grand governing strategy or philosophy, or maybe just the worldview. You mentioned neoliberalism, uh, so. In the run-up to the election uh, interchange, we did five shows on different aspects of neoliberalism. Yeah. Uh, I think because everybody thought Clinton was going to be the president, and here's us describing what we're going to be under for the next four years. Yeah. Uh, didn't turn out that way. Um, but I noticed that you only mentioned neoliberalism twice uh, in, your, in the book. Yeah, I don't I – don't, and then I was talking about something very specific – I right. was I was not talking about the the term the way you're using it. I um you don't want to use it as as a I broad well no that's a British it's a British uh it's a British phrase. The problem is we don't have a real term in America for the great like uh shift to the right that starts in the late 70s mm-hmm. and that is still going strong today. Um we don't have a term. I mean there's people have come up with different ones the age of Reagan, someone called it the age of greed. Uh you know, the, the conservative turn. We don't really have a phrase for it. And neoliberalism is a good phrase. Unfortunately, it's a British phrase uh, because by, the, by liberal, they mean Gladstone, 19th, yeah. 19th century politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's great. But in America, liberal means, you know, Franklin Roosevelt. It means something very different. So but there was a group in the uh, 80s that called themselves neoliberals here in America. And the, this was um, 
It was exactly what you would expect. They, there were all of these different efforts to reform the Democratic Party in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. And they all said the same thing, which is you have to turn away from unions. You have to turn your back on the legacy of Roosevelt and the New Deal, and you have to become the you know, party of the information age. Uh, and they also called these guys Atari Democrats. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, it's an awful term. But um, they sort of then yielded to the Democratic Leadership Council, which was a different uh, conservative Democrat group. And uh, that Bill Clinton was the leader of that, and the rest is history. But there were a whole series of these reform efforts. I mean, you call it reform. Basically, they wanted to... They wanted the Democratic Party to move way to the right, and they they got their way. I mean, they succeeded. Yeah. So, I mean, I've only known the uh, new Democrats. Uh, what, that's, what the, that's what the Democratic Leadership Council called. They're gone now. They don't exist anymore. But that's their legacy lives on in a hundred different ways, and one of them is that term, the new yeah. Democrats. So, but what are what is the the New Deal Democrats, and why? Why did they want to reform away from it? Why was well, that not the, working for the them? New Deal, the New Deal, that's, that's the welfare state. Yeah. So that's the legacy of Roosevelt. You know, a lot of government uh, as, uh, first of all, the safety net. Second of all, government doing lots of hiring. Third of all, government regu- – you know, when there's, when there's slack in the, in the labor market, the government picks it up by, with something like the WPA, mm-hmm. you know, hires people to go uh, build highways or something like that. By the way, weirdly, Trump is talking about that now. Right. I mean, it's such a crazy time <laughs> we're living in. World. But the, also the idea that the government has to take a uh, strong interventionist regulatory role in the economy. So all the great regulatory agencies uh, can be traced back to the New Deal and uh, other things too like antitrust enforcement, all this stuff. And the Democrats turned away from all of that, all the things that I just mentioned they, they've turned away from. But um – but why? Because <laughs> they don't believe in it. They're different people. Look, the, 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 the broader story that I'm uh, telling in Listen Liberal is that the Democrats are – and this is, uh, this is the sort of the essential insight of the book – is that the Democrats are a class party in a 19th century way. They are a party that answers to a particular social class that's made up of this social class that sees this social class as the winners of history, mm-hmm. you know, as, as God's chosen group. Uh, it's just that that social class is not the working class. Mm-hmm. It might once – it was once that in, say, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, today, it's the professional class. That's who the Democrats look to. That's, that's who they are. Uh, you look at, at the, you know, the professional class, the uh, affluent, white-collar, highly educated uh, you know, uh, professional class, people with advanced degrees, people who work on Wall Street, people who work in Silicon Valley – uh, and you know, there, there's a reason that you know we're here in a college town. Hillary did very, very well in college towns. They, you know, mm-hmm. they the Democrats nowadays tend to get wiped out in the countryside. You know, right. among the people yeah. that used to be Democrats, little but they do. <laughs> yes, little spots counties. of blue, and it's always the big cities and the college towns, and that's always that's what they get. You know, yeah. And that that's who they are, though they are the party of the professional class. And once you understand that, everything else follows. From that, and you can you can understand everything they do, why they do it, why they uh, you know treat different groups the way they do. Like why, for example, Barack Obama was so, what's the word, kind uh, to Wall Street, so considerate to mm-hmm. the guys on Wall Street, and why he just could not 
could not get interested in working class issues. Uh, organized labor, you know, had all of these concerns that they would come to him with, and he would just blow them off. And sometimes just in these sort of uh, incredible oversights, like organized labor is, you understand, is one of the uh, biggest donors to the Democratic Party and has traditionally been one of the biggest supports of the Democratic Party. And here he is getting Obamacare done, and they come to him and they're like, you know, we've negotiated all of these health care plans with, our, uh, with, with employers over yeah. the years. And you know, it's a great achievement of ours. You know, we'd like uh, to keep them. And, and, he's like, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I, I forgot about that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to the insurance companies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. I was too busy trying to make Big Pharma happy right. because, you know, that's the creative class over here. That's the future. And that's I really innovation. care about them. Yeah. yeah. That was assistant producer Rob Schoon talking to Thomas Frank, who was in town on March 24th and visited us in our studios here at WFHB. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is Entertainment in Action. Uh, If you're out and about tonight, I know one event happening that might interest you. Interchange is hosting a listening party right now at Farm Bloomington. This is a fundraising event, and a portion of the bar goes to support WFHB when you choose Cardinal Spirits Vodka, Gin, or Coffee Liqueur. In fact, if you happen to be there right now, why not call in and tell us how it's going? Maybe make a pledge while you're at it. It is our spring fun drive. Surely you know how important this is to keep WFHB on the air. We depend on your generosity to operate our broadcasts. It's a tax-deductible gift. It's essential to our very existence. I know it's a weighty burden to bear, uh, but support Interchange and WFHB. Give us a call at 812-323-1200. You can go online to donate at wfhb.org. There's a big red Donate button on the right side of the page. You could be a daily donor. That's $1 a day to support Interchange and WFHB. We also really appreciate the $10 a month donations, but of course, any donation is welcome. Uh, This is how we keep broadcasts on, and this is how we do shows like this. Thomas Frank came to Bloomington uh, for an event with the Democrats from Monroe County, and he came here and talked to us. That's a a national uh, political pundit, a national political commentator, a historian who came in here and sat down with us and had a conversation with Rob Schoon. And later in the show, we're going to talk to Russell Moat. He's an uh, assistant, uh, excuse me, assistant professor in the Department of American Studies at Indiana University. So we've got national and local here on Interchange. So go to your phones, 812-323-1200, or donate online, wfhb.org, and hit that big red donut, excuse me, not a donut, a donate button. Now let's go to a break with the 1986 song, The Way It Is by Bruce Hornsby and the Range, mixed in with Tupac Shakur's response, Changes. Support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service. Now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. 
And support for WFHB's Spring Fund Drive comes from CASA, Monroe County Court-Appointed Special Advocates. CASA provides advocacy for abused and neglected children in our community, working to ensure they have what every child deserves, a safe, loving, and permanent home where they can thrive. More information is available online at monroecountycasa.org or by telephone 812-333-CASA. And still I see no changes Can a brother get a little peace? It's war on the streets and a war in the Middle East Instead of war on poverty They got a war on drugs so the police can bother me And I ain't never did a crime I ain't have to do But now back with the box, giving it back to you Don't let them jack you up, back you up, crack you up And pip smack you up You gotta learn to hold your own They get jealous when they see you with your mobile phone But tell the cops I can't touch this I don't trust this When they try to rush, I bust this That's the sound number two You say it ain't cool but it rains, no fool And as long as I stay black I gotta stay strapped And I never get to lay back Cause I always gotta worry about the payback Some buck that I roughed up way back Coming back after all these years Right, tap, 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 tap That's the way it is That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah Something never change I'm Doug Storm and this is Interchange Tonight's show is Entertainment in Action And part one is Listen Liberal An excerpt from a conversation That Interchange assistant producer Rob Schoon Had with Thomas Frank best-selling author of What's the Matter with Kansas. Before this selection begins, Frank had been discussing the fact that Democrats are no longer Franklin Roosevelt Democrats or New Deal Democrats, no longer the party of the working class, but instead are the party of meritocracy or everyone for themselves. So, so there's the really cool young people that are smart, go to college, they're like Bill Clinton. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and they're they're brought up, you know, through the party leadership and, and they're becoming the the people that make the decisions on how we're gonna govern, who we're going to try to appeal to. Uh, and they grew up through a system of meritocracy you write about. Yeah. Uh, can you describe kind of how yeah, how mer- that meritocracy changes is- the minds of someone? Meritocracy you know, what's so bad about the, going through right, but, school? Well, well, of course, of course. <laughs> Meritocracy is sort of the philosophy of 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 the of this country, and it's also the philosophy of the Democratic Party. And it's you know the idea that the, that the people well, it has many components. Okay, mm-hmm. the the most the, the one that's probably least offensive is the idea that that talented people should be in charge. It's like yeah. They should. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I completely agree with that. <laughs> you know, no argument for me on that. But then you, you, you extend the, this idea a little bit further, and it's, it's that, you know, it holds that the people on top in our society are up there because they deserve to be up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, uh, it also, and then the sort of democratic version, the professional class version of meritocracy holds that every, in life, everybody gets what they deserve. And what they deserve is defined by how they did in school, 
which is kind of a, a, a crazy uh, notion when you think about it. It's not about what you do. It's mm-hmm. not about your works. It's about your, you know, your grades yeah. and how you did on the SAT. What and schools you got into also. Exactly. And that's, by the way, for these people, that's always the most important category. It's not really what you did in college. It's where you, where you went, oh, where, yeah. where you got in. And this is the, your classic East Coast meritocratic worldview. And it's, uh, by and large, associated with the Democratic Party. Now, the reason it's um, – it has a lot of problems. Meritocracy is a v- extremely flawed, <laughs> you know, doctrine. It's not much of a utopia. Mm. Just for starters, this is not a way of dealing with uh, of of taking on inequality. This is a way of rationalizing inequality. You know, you say you you look at anybody, somebody that you know, these people who are complaining about their uh, mid- the middle class crumbling, and you say, well, it's your own damn fault. You didn't go to college, right? You know, you, or maybe you did, but you studied the wrong subject. Or you went to the wrong school. You mm-hmm. needed to go to a really good school. Now, obviously, this is a doctrine that there is no solution for inequality. For, you know, it's it's every man for himself. Meritocracy and professionalism lead to all of these bad uh, decisions by the people on top. Professions are very insular. They keep out uh, heterodox opinion. Uh, and you wind up with a situation like poor Barack Obama becoming president and saying, I'm going to hire the smartest people there are. And he gets Larry Summers, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, president of Harvard, the smartest economist of his generation. And they, you know, uh, uh, and look at Wall Street, the bonuses. Are, I mean, it's all nothing happened. Right. Thanks, Mr. Summers. Thanks, Mr. Geithner. Well, he you know, a, these are the, the best and the brightest. He had a good resume. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you make arguments about. These insular experts taking over the government under Democrats, uh, especially Barack Obama, Um, that was something I was originally, not the financial part, uh, kind of excited about with Barack Obama. Here's a guy who's intellectual. Me too. No, I was was so excited when he became president. Yeah. Yeah, that's like he's, he's my guy. I was one of these guys that was like crazy enthusiastic about him. You know, this is finally one of my people is going to be president and he's going to, you know, he's going to bring in the smartest people and he's going to show you what what uh, what brains and learning can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the opposite. Of, we're looking at George Bush, you know, hacks and cronies, cronies and hacks. Right. You know, it's like the biggest you know, botch of all time. And yeah. here comes Barack Obama, this brilliant man with a you know incredible orator, this ability to explain complex ideas. Wow! Yes, so, I was I was excited. But but what's wrong with having a bunch of smart people running? Well, we learned, things? didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> you, you you put them in there, and uh, and they uh, they continued the policies of Bush in the most important question before the nation, which is what to do about Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, they continued the policies of Bush basically without any change for the first couple of years. Um, the bailouts kept coming. They didn't fire any of the management of the Wall Street banks. They didn't break up any of the banks, by the way, which they richly deserved, you mm-hmm. know, something like Citibank. They didn't put any of the banks out of business. By the way, we put banks out of business in America every day. It happens all the time, especially in smaller towns, smaller cities. But um, the big investment banks... No, 
No way was he going to do that. And he didn't uh, fire the management, by the way, which he's entitled to do as the – you know, he has all the seats on the board because of the bailout. Uh-huh. Uh, when Roosevelt was in a similar situation, yes, they would routinely fire the management of the banks that they bailed out constantly. They always did this because they'd been committing fraud. He, Obama didn't prosecute these guys. By the way, they prosecute little people all the time for lying on mortgage applications. They're probably oh, right. still doing it. Um, the FBI is like hunting these people down. Uh, but they never touched these guys who packaged that, who knew, knowingly packaged that stuff up, up and sold it off to retirees in Germany or wherever. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, these incredible frauds uh, that went on on Wall Street, and nobody ever paid for that. Uh, you know, well, yes, the stockholders paid; they would fine these companies, and the shareholders had to pay, but the management never had to pay. And that is that was mind blowing that obama screwed that up and by the way if you ask me that's the issue that that is the issue that is more important than any other issue had obama acted uh in a you know a resolute um had he gotten tough with wall street i don't think you would have seen 2010 the tea party disaster mm-hmm. year i don't think you would have seen trumpism occupy I, too well yes. occupy right uh none of this would have happened uh, I think that he would have turned the situation around – the economic situation around very quickly. Uh, you know, Look, inequality is worse now than when Obama started and a, that, a lot of that is because the Wall Street – because of the financialization of the economy. These people take everything. They mm-hmm. take everything. We don't make things in America anymore. It all goes to Wall Street and uh, Obama had it within his power to change that. The country expected him to change that, and he didn't do it. Mm. And that failure, I think, is going to haunt the Democratic Party for a very long time. There was an interesting. I, I got away from your subject, though. You oh. want to talk about expertise? Well, I, I, I was going to um, continue with. Uh, so I saw on Frontline uh, basically a recap of the Obama administration recently. The episode where he calls in all the Wall Street, you know, leaders to the White House. Uh, that was the critical like, moment. Oh, they're in trouble. Yeah, and, <laughs> yes. And then they all they all come out, and the catchphrase is, "We're all in this together." Yeah, nothing changed. That's one of the one of them. That's said a different to, kind of solidarity. Yeah, right? that's right. Obama, and the, the Treasury Department, and the banks—they're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. We're going to foam the runway for the banks, is what Tim Tim Geithner said. But but you know, professional and, class solidarity, right? Yep. Exactly. Expertise in government. Yes. Where did it go wrong? And you just put your finger on it. That what what happens is these people. At the top in the Treasury Department and the Justice Department and all the other sort of agencies that are that were charged with doing something about this, they look at the guys on Wall Street and they see uh, people just like themselves. They see people they probably know them. They probably went to college with them or graduate school. Uh, you know, and they they look at them. They see sophisticated people. The jargon they love that Wall Street jargon. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's pseudo technical jargon. These yeah. people are suckers for that. You know, well, one of the things in professionalism is making up a jargon. You have to have that. Right? You have to know the lingo. <laughs> well, yeah. because that that excludes outsiders. That's an important uh, marker for professionalism. You've got to be able to keep out the outsiders. And so they look at Wall Street and they see a profession in full. Mm-hmm. Very admirable. Financial innovation, they used to call it back in the day. What the derivatives are <laughs> yes, Yeah, the, the uh, mortgage-backed <laughs> securities. That's financial innovation, you know. Obama's the innovation president. He's not going to punish these guys. He's, that's just innovation. Yeah. Now, when you lie on a mortgage uh, application, that's not innovation. That's something else. Yeah, that's, that's a crime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's class solidarity. It's basic class solidarity at the top. The guys at the top... Uh, are looking out for each other. And this this is not just um, Wall Street. This is 
uh, the big pharma. Mm-hmm. This is Silicon Valley. I mean, Eric Schmidt, you look at his close identification, the head of Google, mm-hmm. his close identification with the Democratic Party or Obama hanging around with Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, how many times did yeah. he have to do you know, events with Mark Zuckerberg? But they, they identify with these people very profoundly. So they see themselves. Here's what I'm getting at. Uh, they see themselves as a party of the new economy winners. And this is important because they are our left party in this stupid system that we have in the this country. System. The binary system. The left party in our country sees itself as a party of winners, just slightly different winners than the ones that the Republicans identify with. But both are parties of winners. Okay. And working class people are left to sort of fit themselves into the system in some way. I mean nobody is is really concerned with their interests. That was Thomas Frank talking to assistant producer Rob Schoon about the state of the Democratic Party, once the party of the people, now the party of the professional class and financial innovation. There was much more to that interview, and we'll be airing it fully on a future interchange. I need to make a correction. Thomas Frank visited Bloomington at the behest of democracy for Monroe County. Uh, It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange with our special fund drive show, asking for money as we lament the inaction of donating to liberal causes. Hmm. When we return, we'll be joined by Rasul Mowat for another episode in the Sounds of Resistance series. Stay with us. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at WFHB.org. The time is 6 o'clock, and the current temperature is 65 degrees. Tonight, we can expect a low of 47 degrees, a 20% chance of precipitation. Tomorrow, a high of 69 and 100% chance for thunderstorms. A low overnight Wednesday of 38 degrees. 30, or I'm sorry, Thursday, quite a bit cooler. A high of 48 degrees under rainy skies with a low of 34 degrees overnight. One man washed on an empty beach. One man
Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show today is Entertainment in Action. In our first segment, we heard a selection from assistant producer Rob Schoon's interview with author Thomas Frank. His most recent book, Listen Liberal, is out in paperback. Now we turn to another episode in our Sounds of Resistance series. This is The Sound of Inaction. My collaborator on the series is Rasul Mowat, and he returns to our studio today. Welcome back, Rasul. Thank you very much. Rasul is Associate Professor of American Studies and Associate Chair and Associate Professor in Recreation, Park, and Tourism Studies with the School of Public Health at Indiana University. Before we get to the show, we, uh, excuse me, the song we played there at the top of the hour, the U2 song, Rasul, let's, let's jump back to the Bruce Hornsby, Tupac Shakur mashup that we played. What do you think of that one? I hate that song. Which, uh, both of them or just the T- Tupac Shakur song? Well, I mean, you know, the first song, I mean, and in, in terms of this opinion, this is not part of our political discussion, no, so there's no. not a lot of uh, <laughs> degree of uh, uh, intellect in, you know, in my response. But uh, just I think the first um, song is not something that will probably ever appear on a playlist that I will have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I think the, the Tupac uh, sort of version of it, interestingly enough, I, I've you know, until you told me in prepping for the show about the song, I completely forgot about it because ah. I think most listeners of Tupac probably never include that song ah. in their sort of playlist for Tupac. It appeared like on a Greatest Hits album mm-hmm. two years after he died. Mm. Um, it was completely sanitized um, and sort of reflects no other sort of song from Tupac's discography. Too uh, too middle of the road for Tupac or to to Bruce Hornsby, to Bruce Hornsby, yeah. and, and interestingly enough, Bruce Hornsby, uh, you know, is not the reason for it being sanitized. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually um, um, did not sort of request that uh, mm-hmm. to be done to the original song. Uh, actually, the original song is sort of traditional Tupac, but somehow it was cleaned up by a combination of the Shakur Foundation and the record label. Oh, okay. Um, so it was very, it was kind of made to be kind of hokey sounding, mm-hmm. even though he still tried to, he tries to touch on a you know a lot of interesting points, but mm-hmm. it doesn't quite fit. Right, right, right. Well, the Hornsby song obviously is uh, full of uh, the general platitudes we get, but uh, you know, some things will never change is how we let things go by us, right? That's the, right. the platitude. Uh, you don't listen to people who say things will never change. You can make a change. <laughs> right. right. You right. can do it. Right. But but interestingly enough, Tupac's version says uh, things, things never seem changed. never right. change. Right. Yeah, right. seem right. to never change. Yeah. Right. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Russell, you're a regular guest on Interchange. I think you vie with Christoph Ermscher as our uh, guest with the most appearances, um, at least as long as I've been host of this venerable local program. Uh, that's, I think, in January 2015, I was looking at our calendar, mm. you uh, came on uh, with Jacinda Townsend to talk a bit about the uses of MLK to the establishment, to politics, to power, a stamp, a day, a myth. Uh, that show was called The Acceptable MLK. I remember. Um, yeah. Today is April 4. It's the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination by James Earl Ray. And I opened with U2's recognition of that day and event. It popped up all over my Facebook feed as, uh, as I guess, the song that must be known as the you know, death of MLK song. For some people, I guess. For some people. <laughs> Again. I'm sure there may be some <laughs> other songs that, <laughs> right. that, are, that are good. But, um, you know, the band, I, I think this kind of fits into where we'll end up finding ourselves in the show. There, there are certain mega bands that are acceptable as well or that, that 
do some nice moralizing in their pop culture and, and in their pop commercial culture. Uh, I think uh, probably uh, Bono is one of those people that <clears throat> thinks, you know, he, he has a moral compass for the rest of us, maybe. That's part of the discussion as well today. Um, so I really never quite understood that song, and it, just in the fact that it says, uh, they took your life, they would not take your pride. Mm. I don't really know what that means. What, any guesses, or do you know what, what you take pride away from somebody? Uh, it's a weird, I, it's a weird word for me. Probably a real, you know, a weird word, but I think it's probably one of those things in terms of a songwriter trying to sort of insert words that will fit within the scheme, and <laughs> right. so probably uh, pride. <laughs> so probably <laughs> pride was in place of uh, dignity, oh, right? Okay. Right? Sure, sure. Um, sure. <clears throat> because um, by the time. You know, close to his assassination, he was not as popular. Oh, uh, even that's though true. he, you know, mm-hmm. even among those who had previously accepted him, mm-hmm. he was no longer as popular. Well, he'd taken a turn, right? He turned against the, um, I guess, the establishment in all ways, even the, exactly uh, the yeah. Vietnam War, and then support the labor movement, mm-hmm. uh, primarily working with uh, the Memphis sanitation workers. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, uh, also the fact that uh, that it's not he was assassinated in the uh, I think it's six p.m. So the song says early morning April four, and I think you know, Bonahouse apologized for that, and that's good. It wasn't Wikipedia then. Wikipedia is all over my program today. So, anyway, so let's uh, let's move on to our first song. We've got a lot of songs, and and I'm, I'm babbling, and we should get to the songs so we can uh, talk about them. This uh, is probably our theme song for the show. Uh, Love Me, I'm a Liberal by Phil Oaks. In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? (laughs) I go to civil rights rally, and I put down the old D.A.R. D.A.R., that's the dykes of the American Revolution. I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered when Humphrey was chosen My faith in the system restored And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out From the AFL-CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes As long as they don't move next door 
people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter? Don't they watch less crane? But if you ask This is Doug Stormline Interchange. That was Phil Oaks, uh, part of that song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. I like how it started out there, a little preamble saying that uh, a liberal is an outspoken uh, outspoken on many subjects 10 degrees to the left of center in good times 10 degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally now where this is a song attacking liberals what's why do you think phil oaks wants to attack liberals in this song russell well you know i think uh it's a sort of a satire critical piece uh trying to look at how in particular the time when the song came out um, how liberals were sort of um, operating. You know, they reference uh, the time period right when there was the, you know, Hubert Humphrey, I think McGovern, um, and McCarthy sort of split mm-hmm. uh, within the D- Democratic Party when they were running for that. I know we have another song that sort of addresses that later mm-hmm. on. Um, so it's just looking at very different, you know, each of those candidates were very different from each other um, in terms of their perception of what type of society uh, the Democratic Party was really going to usher in. Um, And so Phil Oaks was just a part of that sort of criticism saying that um, although they have had these aspirational points that they have expressed to us, the limits or the extent in which those aspirations really impacted everyday society was very limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's let's ask the question of songs generally. Again, we, we come to this uh, series in the show to try to understand what, what songs can do or what they can't do or what they try to do and sometimes what they get paid to do and don't intend to do anything necessarily. So Phil Oaks, uh, as far as I can tell, was a guy who really meant what he said. Um, um, and um, the idea that a liberal, uh, and I don't think this is a probably a wrong perspective. Um, Melba called this the moderate man, uh, the, the, the man who is useless for, for good, but very useful for evil, mm, um, because okay. you don't generally take a stand. Right. Uh, you don't stand for good. You say, oh, please don't do that. Or, mm. Let's be nice to each other. And there, there's an issue there and here, of course, right? Um, but he starts out with the, the Medgar Evers, too. Uh, so, um, you know, he's, he's hitting you hard really quick here. Right, uh, and he's 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 taking the perspective of the liberal who is un- sad about Meg Evers, but you know that Malcolm X had better get in his place. <laughs> right, right there, he starts out right in the heart of it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think I mean you know, I, you know connected to the first part of um, you know that you included with the show with Thomas Frank, I think sometimes we don't think of uh, these things we throw around as philosophies or mm-hmm. political philosophies, mm-hmm. and so. Um, with a political philosophy, there there are ways in which it sort of enhances our understanding or viewpoint, but there's also limits. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we don't understand the limits, you know, even so we adopt a political philosophy without really understanding that it only goes or takes us so far. Right. And uh, if we don't really examine uh, what philosophy that we see ourselves within, we may actually end up limiting ourselves mm. um, in, in ways that we didn't conceive. Mm, that's interesting. We do tend to do that, I think, right? Uh, right. We have our own blinders on most of the time. Right. So, so they, he, you know, so Meg Evers was acceptable enough right. to cry for, right. but somehow there was a limit that prevented you from going further um, and also crying for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, another question I wanted to ask here is to try to understand the difference between someone like Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan. Um, Bob Dylan, a very successful folk singer who became a pop icon as much as anything else, an icon for for many people, uh, an icon for British uh, literary professors as well, and and for the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, someone who you can stand behind with his his particular version of music and literature and protest. Phil Oaks, not so much. Phil Oaks was, I think, a far more strident individual, uh, very angry about things. Um, but in that period, maybe it was the right thing to be at the time, but he wasn't very popular at the time, mm. uh, I, I guess in terms of commercial success, I mean. Yeah, true. Um, so, you know, in one case, uh, it's the case that the artists uh, themselves uh, made sure their message was very um, sanitized and appealing mm-hmm. to a popular masses, or was it that the masses themselves or the, or the popular listenership chose to um, distinguish or determine who they would want to listen to more. I mean, similar to the Tupac sort of mm-hmm. piece where it's like, I, I won't listen to all these other songs by Tupac, but I will definitely listen to <laughs> right. you know changes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so similar in this piece, I won't listen to Phil Oaks, but I'll definitely listen to mm-hmm. a Bob Dylan song. Why? Well, um, because my friends listen to it mm-hmm. or... Um, he sounds better, all right? Or, Bob Dylan? <laughs> right, or something to that effect, yeah. Right. yeah. right, well, at the end of this song, it says, I once was young, this is a standard conservative turn, right? We start out uh, liberal and become conservative. I once was young and impulsive. I wore every conceivable pin, went to the socialist meetings, learned all the union hymns. This is, the, this is what we run into, right? The idea of, uh, you know, I find that most uh, union songs are great when union people are together and singing them. I don't know that they get people moving. Like right. something happens that gets you to a place and then the song might be something that c- gives you a cohesive sense of uh, what group identity once you're already there. Or yeah, yeah, and so, and so um, have people adopted the philosophy of liberalism just because other people also adopt it, right? Do we not have the nuance in political philosophy that we see in this country? only because people have just gravitated to what other people do mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to really sort of questioning what are the types of what what are the types of society um, that we can sort of think about mm-hmm. and what type of society can we build yeah well it's our uh, let's take a quick break for our fun drive actually we've got a fun drive show tonight and we're uh, asking you to pledge to WFHB and interchange you can go uh, online wfhb.org and hit that big red donate button or you can call it one two three two three twelve hundred and support interchange. Uh, I I thought about this many times. I have lots of reasons why I want you to support WFHB. Generally, I want you to like the show. I'm I'm like Phil Oaks in some sense. I'm like the liberal in some... I want you to like me. And so send us money for that. No, that's not the best reason. But we work hard here, uh, and it's part of what uh, what interests me about radio was being able to sit down with Russell Moat and find out more about other perspectives on things. That's kind of the the draw for me to have this program, to be a part of this program, is to is to get to sit down with people and find out a lot of things I didn't know in the first place. And usually that happens in the middle of the show where I discover I was saying something totally inane, and, and Rasul corrects me, generally, uh, in a friendly way. Um, but you can go online and uh, donate to us, wfhb.org. There's a donate button there. Take a minute to do it. Take a minute right now to call in so we can say thank you to you on the air. one 312 is our phone number. Uh, uh, we do like 
the ten dollar a month donation is great for us. It helps for our stability in budgeting uh, the the operations of the station as well. Ten dollars a month out of your bank bank account. It's simple. It's easy. You can do it out of your credit card as well. So one uh, excuse me eight one two three two three twelve hundred or wfhb.org. There's a big donate button. Hit it and give us some money. Thank you very much. Uh, so let's get back to our program. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Russell Moat about songs of inaction. This is uh, part two in our series of the sounds of resistance. Uh, we just listened to Phil Oaks sing Love Me, I'm a Liberal. Let's shift uh, and do another song. This one is a part of a, an Annie DeFranco song. This is called Self-Evident. It's not the whole song. It's a part of the song. It's about a nine-minute poem song. God, and this is unbelievable. And, on and, on. and I'll tell you what, while we're at it, you can keep the Pentagon. You can keep the propaganda. You can keep each and every TV that's been trying to convince me to participate in some prep school punk's plan to perpetuate retribution. Perpetuate retribution. Even as the blue toxic smoke of our lesson in retribution is still hanging in the air and there's ash on our shoes. And there's ash in our hair. And there's a fine silt on every mantle from Hell's Kitchen to Brooklyn. And the streets are full of stories, sudden twists and near misses. And soon every open bar is crammed to the rafters with tales of narrowly averted disasters. And the whiskey is flowing like never before. As all over the country, folks just shake their heads and pour. Here's a toast to all the folks that live in Palestine, Afghanistan, Iraq, El Salvador. Here's a toast to all the folks living on the Pine Ridge Reservation, under the stone-cold gaze of Mount Rushmore. Here's a toast to all those nurses and doctors who daily provide women with a choice, who stand down a threat the size of Oklahoma City just to listen to a young woman's voice. Here's a toast to all those folks on death row right now, awaiting the executioner's guillotine, who are shackled there with dread and can only escape into their heads to find peace in a form of a dream. Peace in a form of a dream. Peace in a form of a dream. Because take away our playstations and we are a third world nation under the thumb of some blue blood royal son who stole the Oval Office and that phony election. I mean, it don't take a weatherman to look around and see the weather. Jeff said he'd deliver Florida folks and boy did he ever. And we hold these truths to be self-evident. Number one, George W. Bush is not president. Number two, America is not a true democracy. And number three, the media is not fooling me, because I... Jen, oh, I'm, I'm on now. 
Uh, this is Interchange on WFHB. We shut that song off right before she uh, uh, lambasted the media, which would be us. So uh, I'd like to welcome you again to Interchange. This is a second in our series of uh, with Rasul Mowat on the Sounds of Resistance. That was Ani DeFranco's Self-Evident, or part of it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts of that song, Rasul, or what you heard anyway. Oh, well, I mean, you know, one, you know, the she as an artist is definitely very much known for sort mm-hmm. of her stance on uh, various sort of political views and so on. But I think, you know, there's, you know, it's more than just a song that we're sort of considering. We're also considering the artist, right? Mm, and sure. so um, I know you also have some, a little bit more background of an incident that sort of soon followed. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, uh, uh, the, you know, the reason that Ani DeFranco uh, obviously came to the fore in, in our, uh, I guess, consciousness is uh, her, uh, um, her attempt to do a righteous retreat of that uh, was going to take place at Iberville Parish's Nottaway Plantation in White Castle, Louisiana. Uh, Nottaway was one of the largest plantations in the South. And um, she um, eventually, I think, after a lot of people pushing back against doing that retreat, um, uh, canceled it. And so there was a lot of there's a lot of interesting things that happen in this in this world where people are are making hay or making money off of how they project themselves as performers of a certain kind of stance, a certain kind of resistance, a certain kind of, you know, this, this is what Ani DeFranco, uh, I guess, it became for me in this situation as someone who, who, who I think writes an okay song there. I mean, there's some interesting uh, lyrics happening. Uh, my favorite, uh, probably the takeaway, our PlayStations were a third world nation is an interesting lyric. Um, but again, we are, we're going to ask ourselves questions about uh, the performer herself. Who mm, is she? Right. Um, where does she, what does she do? Where does she come from? You know, how, how do we make these statements have meaning and how do we deal with the audience's responses? You know, what, what's happening with Ani DeFranco audiences, right? It, are, are these songs of protest Again, do they do anything? I, I've just uh, Rob and I talk sometimes about jazz uh, uh, tension and release, right? Mm. And I often think that most 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 music is basically release, and I, I'd probably argue that most of what we do on our computers, et cetera, are a way to not have to deal with the actual things we should be dealing with. Right? Uh, she seemed to be like oblivious too. Of mm. Yeah, well, she she was a little grumpy about having to apologize. Yeah, so could, could you could, could you give us the, sure. the, the the apology? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is part of the apology. She said uh, when I agreed to do a retreat with the promoter who organized such things before the, with other artists and approached me about being the next host teacher. Uh, I didn't know the exact location. Uh, I only knew that it would be not too far outside of New Orleans so that I could potentially come home to my bed each night. I knew one of the days of the retreat was slated as a field trip. Uh, Later, I found that it was to be held at a a resort on a former plantation. I thought to myself, whoa, but I did not imagine or understand that the setting of a plantation would trigger such collective outrage or result in so much high-velocity bitterness. What uh, I, so the, all the all the news articles I saw at the time were you know uh, again of course we're talking about white privilege and the blindness of white privilege. Yeah, I mean, so you know, I mean, there's you know some points that she's sort of saying that you know clearly stick out. Like, so I did not know, I did not imagine. Um, basically, I did not understand, but you know, but I'm certain she probably knew about a check, you know, <laughs> and so um, you know, so. And I'm not trying to get into the conversation about holding artists accountable and right. that that sort of perspective, but it sort of bleeds into um, is what you're performing, um, 
you know, something that also, in, you know, integrates itself in terms of your whole life perspective, you know, so it's very, it very easy for her to sort of have these condemning points in her songs, sure. but nothing where she sort of critically analyzed her own sort of activities. Right. I mean, the logistics for the plantation had already been set. She was already coming. So it wasn't until right. things were, you know, going, right. you know, that, um, and a reaction to the outrage right. uh, that there was now an issue to sort of pull back. It was good that there was activism against that. Yeah, right? yeah. It was a, an impressive yeah. thing, right? Well, the the interesting thing, too, is that there's, um, uh, I think, in this sort of scenario of, of singers, uh, and again, in this commercial moment, I, I think I struggle a little bit with trying to parse the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, and uh, Korean War, Vietnam War, and what seemed to be a, a, real, a real outcry of protest uh, and civil rights and... Um, uh, you know, Black Panthers and, you know, these real uh, issues at the time that seemed to be roiling in the country and versus the 80s and the 90s, which uh, we, we'd already sort of moved into, let's offshore all our problems, we'll offshore our wars, we'll offshore things in ways that won't harm us, and now we, we criticize them generally, but we don't, we don't take responsibility for them in some sense. And that's, that's kind of, you know, how, I guess, protest music seems to have evolved, at least in this arena, you know, there again. There may be lots of other kinds of songs that we're we have we're not we're yeah. not touching on here today. Correct, correct. Yeah. So uh, for me, uh, I think that uh, I'd like to, um, I guess, just try to understand again what we think. And I'm going to make I'm going to force you to try to say it, Russell. What what is a protest song doing? You know, what do we expect it to do? Do we expect Ani DeFranco to be a leader? Do we expect uh, Gil Scott Heron to be a leader who shows up later in, in the, in the sh- Actually, Gil Scott Heron's song comments on this song somewhat. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised comments on the fact that you're singing a song about protest. You know, you're, sing- you're, you're not actually doing the thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, this goes back again to the listener. So same sort of points that we were making about the sort of popularity of Tupac um, changes for some people and not for right. others, but then also... Um, you know, getting into, you know, artists, you know, and so um, there are some people who expect protest songs to be a guidepost for them, mm. right, you know, um, and also serve as some type of anthem and rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are those who, if they're engaged in actual sort of um, uh, levels of activism and song, it's just something that they listen to to sort of keep them mm-hmm. um, in check or keep them thinking in the right time, you know, right. sort of frame of mind. Um, and so there's, I think there's differences in listeners. And so, and then there's also ways in which we touched on this in our, in our last episode on in this series is that there are some songs that are political mm-hmm. um, that we sort of misconstrue into becoming protest songs, mm-hmm. right? Just because they have political context doesn't right. mean that they are necessarily that. Mm. Um, Hard for things not to be political sometimes. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. And so, um, so I think a proper protest song fits within the scheme of protest, which is simply a tactic to sort of either raise awareness, challenge mm-hmm. the system, and so, so maybe this uh, song that we just listened to by Andy Franco doesn't quite fit within a protest songs, even though probably it's in the top ten, top fifty, top hundred protest songs mm-hmm. of, according to somebody's list. Um, but the, th- the next song we probably listen to is probably um, definitely something that is a 
you know, clear, intentional protest song. Right, very good. So we're going to take a break, and during the break, we're going to listen to this next song. It's Public Enemies by the time I get to Arizona. Um, it's off the Apocalypse 91 album, The Enemy Strikes Black. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm joined by Rasul Mowat for the second uh, second episode in our series, The Sounds of Resistance. This is The Sound of Inaction, part of today's Entertainment in Action, 90 Minutes Fun Drive Special. Stay with us. Storm on Interchange. That was Public Enemy by the time I get to Arizona. 
that one, I think, had a pretty controversial music video uh, where Public Enemy was depicted killing the 17th governor of Arizona, Evan Meacham, 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 who refused to recognize Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday. You want to give us a little more background on that, Rasul? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first in terms of, I guess, the artistic violence that's sort of portrayed in the, the video, because um, I think that's you know how we have to see the context of it, mm-hmm. I think sometimes people separate, in particular hip-hop, from being some type of art form. Mm. Um, and so we know anything about Public Enemy, they were always very, they're still very much intentional with everything, their imagery, their sound, and everything. And Chuck D sort of commented in an interview, said that, you know, Dr. King did not make the video. Uh, Dr. King died a <laughs> right. violent death, right. and right. I'm answering, you know, right. that particular point with this sort of visual presentation. Um, I know my own uncle at the time um, sort of condemned the video, Clarence Page, mm. you know. So, um, but but that's sort of Chuck's response. He was not favorable of Dr. King and his perspective, but he was outraged by the fact that, one, um, not only was he assassinated, um, but also, two, that, you know, a holiday wasn't being accepted by Arizona and New Hampshire. Um, so, again, some background. Um, Arizona uh, was one of the states that um, did not accept the holiday. Well, initially, you know, when Reagan sort of signed it in as a national holiday in 1983, the uh, the Democrat Republic, uh, Governor Bruce Babbitt did actually put in executive order recognizing oh, okay. the holiday. So it's not until then the following governor, hmm. Evan Metcham, um, came in that uh, that he actually rescinded that particular sort of acceptance of the holiday. Um, hmm. Metcham was eventually impeached. Oh. Um, uh, but the only way, in, but he instituted a law that said basically uh, that there's, you know, according to the Arizona state constitution that uh, any new holiday has to be approved by popular vote, yeah. and so uh, the you know people in the state actually voted against um, ha- accepting the holiday. Mm. So from there, you know, so while this national holiday was you know existing, here's a state that's not accepting it. Um, those of us who are sort of familiar also with sports, this is also the uh, NFL was preparing for this incident and issue potentially and and end up resulting in moving um, I forgot the number of Super Bowl but they moved the Super Bowl for 1990 mm. um, away from uh, Phoenix um, because of this particular incident or issue but yes you know the video is violent it sort of depa- you know simulates um, not only <clears throat> assassinating the, the then governor at the time but it also replays incidents that were occurring in civil rights era. So okay. um, a man is sort of be um, looking like and acting like Dr. King is sitting at a uh, diner, receiving food, but having food thrown on him, mm-hmm. uh, not being accepted in other locations. So it was trying to highlight who he was. And again, in relation to what Chuck D's point, which was he was trying to fight for these civil rights, uh, and then he was assassinated very violently. Right. Um, and... And so, you know, he's responding, you know, to that violence. Mm. Uh, 
So this was this is definitely one that uh, is a political song that that really means it and is uh, is a protest song as well. Or uh, are we able to characterize it that way? Yeah, I know we're mentioning uh, slightly in in the break. There is mm-hmm. not any curse words except for maybe right. like a, a goddamn or whatever right, else. Right. And so it it was also made for the radio right. and the video was made for um, depiction. Mm-hmm. So it was intentional to sort of draw attention because right. not as many people knew you know so in certain states where you were at you know you might have known that MLK was a holiday whereas you didn't know that there was another state that hadn't even accepted it right, yet right. and so um, hmm. the video the song did assist in sort of raising the awareness and not just the awareness that the holiday should be in effect but the fact that there's people who were so strident right. against even the idea of a holiday. Right. Uh, yeah, a way to draw attention to uh, a particular perspective, a, a particular kind of uh, attitude towards that that idea. It's an it's an interesting question. Like, so you and I would argue, or we have talked on this program before about how we make use of. Um, public figures, how we make use of martyred figures even, how we make use of our fallen people. Um, and even, uh, you know, even in a song that you think has the right to make, make use, right? Um, it's, it's one of those conflicting things too, right? Where you want to say, how do we, how do we make uh, a song about people that, that are not well known, like, right. you know, who, who won't be touchstones for most people? How do we protest the everyday things that we're, that are going on, right? Yeah. So yeah. you see the, the larger song, Annie DeFranco's song is a large song yeah. about large events, about things that you, you don't need to know much about Iraq or El Salvador, although it might escape some people's attention, right? That there are terrible things happening in those places, but they they take on that sort of top tier mm. concern and kind of again move us out of our neighborhoods in some sense. Right? Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of what is interesting to me about the songs that really get into this is this is what we do. This is where we live. These are the problems we're facing. And even if that changes song by Tupac is sanitized, it does try to call attention to the the fact that you know nothing does change. Uh, these songs keep coming. Correct. Yeah. Um, but the san you know the sanitization may sort of you know make the song more appealing to a population that may not even want to do anything <laughs> that's true. right um um I mean so think about you know the fact that this song by public enemy is about Dr. King right and then the name of love is about also right. Dr. King right. both are in response right. to assassinations both have very different feels true right yeah yeah um mm-hmm. Both have a very different sort of uh, reaction to the reality of his assassination, mm-hmm. um, and both are delivering very two, you know, different messages. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, we should go to a break, uh, but we sh- uh, I guess we'll play the Graham Nash song next as well. So let's let's do this. Uh, uh, we'll we'll first let me announce that this is WFHB's spring. Fun Drive. Uh, I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're asking you to go to your phone and call 812-323-1200 to make a pledge to WFHB to help us support our volunteers, support our news gathering volunteers, as well as our staff here. Uh, It takes your money to keep the station running. This is a station that is volunteer powered and that runs uh, in large part on donations from you. So please pick up your phone, 812-323-1200. Go to the website, wfhb.org. It's a secure donation site. 
uh, go there and choose the uh, amount of money you'd like to pledge. It gives you some op- options there, 60 or $120. Pledge $5 a month. Pledge $10 a month. Comes out of your bank account or credit card. Simple. Uh, but I'm sure if you're listening to this show that you like WFHB, that you want to continue to listen to it. So take the time to support it. Call up 812-323-1200 or go to the internet and go on to WFHB.org and hit the donate button that's there. We're going to listen to uh, Graham Nash's Chicago next and take a little break. Chicago just to sing In a land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring We can change the world We are ready Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptown.com. And support for WFHB's Spring Fun Drive comes from CASA Monroe County Court-Appointed Special Advocates. CASA provides advocacy for abused and neglected children in our community, working to ensure they have what every child deserves, a safe, loving, and permanent home where they can thrive. More information is available online at MonroeCountyCASA.org or by telephone 812-333-CASA. Special thanks to both Dats and Darn Good Soup for providing food for our Fun Drive volunteers today. Dats serves classic and modern Cajun and Creole eats and is located at 211 South Grand Street. Darn Good Soup features a rotating menu of soups, including vegetarian and gluten-free options, located on the square at 107 North College Avenue. And just a reminder, that number to call and pledge your support to WFHB is 812 323-1200 or go online wfhb.org
Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. We are listening to, or we just listened to, Chicago by Graham Nash. The song refers to both the riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, as well as the trial of the Chicago 8, where protesters at the convention were charged with intent to incite a riot. Um, the first line of the song, so your brother's bound and gagged and they chained him to a chair, refers to Bobby Seale, the defendant who was gagged and bound to a chair in the courtroom following repeated outbursts. I think he was um, fine or he was sort of sent to, um, what, four years in prison? That uh, I think that was set aside, actually, right. though, on, on appeal, maybe. Uh, anyway, so the, the Chicago 7, Abby Hoffman, um, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, John Freunds, and Lee Wiener, charged by the federal government with conspiracy, inciting to riot and other charges related to the Vietnam War and countercultural protests. That's in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so that's a song that, uh, again, is that a protest song, a, pol- a political song? or uh, This song came out a fair m- amount of time after the Democratic Convention. I think it's 68. The song was at least on an album in 1971, I right, think. Correct. So it can't, it's like a, a historical song at some point. Right. right? Not, a, not a call to action necessarily, is it? It's not a call to action and only in the sense that uh, the divisions within the Democratic Party were still existing. For sure. You know? sure. Um, so I think, right. you know, one, it's ironic that uh, we're talking in 2017 right. with right. a Democratic Party that's in disarray. Yeah. Uh, but similarly in 1968, right. um, you had three very different sort of um, representatives president johnson decided to also not run again mm-hmm. but you also had strong local um democratic leaders who mm-hmm. wanted to also stake their claim one of which of course is mayor daly mm-hmm. uh, who um very much ruled the city of chicago yes. not just governed <laughs> the city of chicago <laughs> right. and um and he uh, actually is the one that initiated some very strong armed police tactics on the 10,000 protesters that were mm. literally across the street from the hotel in Grant Park, mm. um, who was holding a rally, and, th- and they were then um, sort of um, harmed by several uh, members of the police. Mm. So uh, the, the song does ask you to come to Chicago, though. Like it does say, come do something, right? Right, um, right, j- right. But just to sing. Right. So, well, I mean, you know, I think that also represents the differences even amongst the people who were countering the the Democratic Convention. So there was a National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. There was a Students for Democratic Society. And then there was the, uh, the Youth International Party. Um, they were not, you know, um, in the same spaces, all three of those consistently. Um, and so I think, you know, there were some people who you know, thought that they could sort of um, love their way to a change uh, against uh, the mayor. I'm not sure uh, you believe in that. Do you, Russell? Love your way to a change? What kind of love? Uh, not, not this particular type mm. of singing. Okay, yeah. 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 Well, uh, it, it is an interesting thing to think about, that we love ourselves, love our neighbor. Love is uh, a, a word that comes up frequently in how we are supposed to uh, engage with other people in trying to change the world, um, that we have to empathize. Uh, with people, right. um, but uh, we often run up against people that absolutely will not empathize with us. You know, will not understand us. Well, this is these are some difficult questions, and and we are a polarized country. It seems, even if it's um, intentionally a political choice that leaders make to polarize us, it does seem like we we always run against someone having. Um, a perspective that we can't understand. Right. I mean, James Baldwin said, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you do not see. And so I think 
our next song sort of is a, a song that sort of is forcing us to sort of see something. Great. Let's go to the next song. That's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. This is Doug Storm on WFHB. That was Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Uh, we didn't get to hear it all there, but uh, it's, it's great throughout. This song, uh, a poem, basically, by Gil Scott Heron, was recorded in, for his 1970 album Small Talk. Uh, and let's see, what else? Um, mm, this song's title, originally a popular uh, slogan among the 1960s black power movements in the United States. Um, this song is also a, a touchstone of many, many, many things that distract us from actually paying attention to things. The yeah. revolution. Right. Well, I mean, we kind of hinted at it in terms of certain songs, certain songs that we even cannot really play um, right. on the radio. And right. so Gil Scott Heron was heavily influenced by another group, The Last Poets, and their particular oh. song, which is um, the N-word, um, you know, Our Scared of Revolution. Mm. And that song definitely directly influenced mm. uh, The Revolution Would Not Be Televised. Both are, both are critique songs. About people who are supposedly engaged in activism and organizing efforts, right. but are not true. 
Hmm. Well, uh, it, it goes on throughout. It's a, it's a, like, I, like I said, a kind of a touchstone of, of uh, popular culture at the time as well. Uh, I do love that the song, the song will not be sung by Francis Scott Key or Engelbert Humperdinck, right. uh, who was popular. Uh, yeah. Even I don't even know what to say about that. Well, the name is ridiculous, of course. Now it's not. It's rude to say that to Engelbert Humperdinck, but Dink, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> excuse me. The the song is one of my favorites. And it's hard. It's hard necessarily to 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 talk about it. Gil Scott Heron wrote a lot of songs that we could have played. Yeah, uh, uh, plenty, and I'm sure yeah. we'll get to some other ones. But right. um, you know, but yeah, this song is laced with so many popular culture references um, to sort of deliver the point about criticism, the hone, and to hone in the idea that. Uh, one, you know, the the idea of social change can't be for for yourself, can't be cha- can't be done for a performance. Right. Um, There's a question right there, right? Yeah, it yeah. can't be done for performance. Yet yeah. Here we are talking about performers. Right. You know, I mean, he, he talked about Whitney Young and Roy Wilkins, mm-hmm. who was at that time executive director of the NAACP. Um, um, he, you know, he was talking about, you know. Uh, different sort of um, politicians who had said one thing and did not, you know, uh, and did something else. Um, so, yeah, the song is just laced with so many different references. Well, it's important, I think, too, because um, it, even though it's about television, even though it was 1971, the ideas and that it's about television, it's about the ways in which we, we are distracted by all these things as yeah. well, right? The Correct. Beverly Hillbillies, uh, the uh, Search for Tomorrow as a uh, soap opera. Um, you, you won't care if Dick finally gets down with Jane because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it references the idea that we were so wrapped up into TV that probably our everyday sort of communication always had references of, did you see what was on? Did you see right, what was on? Right, and right. so no different than our sort of level of connectivity to social media yeah, nowadays. Yeah, terrible. Um, Let's, I, I hate to do it. We're about, yeah. we're going to run out of time and we need to talk a little bit about Nina Simone's song. Correct. It's the last song on the show. So let's, uh, let's give it a little bit of love before we uh, close out this uh, next song. And we'll close with it. This is Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn. This is a live version. You want to set it up, Russell? Yeah, definitely. Um, she starts off with being, a, you know, saying it's a show tune, but a show that has not been written yet. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I don't know that we actually have that particular version, uh, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about me. so upset Lurleen Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama has got me so upset And Memphis has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn We're going to have to truncate that. It's terrible. It's the, one of the best songs. You should go listen to it right now if you can. Um, uh, again, a reaction to, I, I believe, Megger Evers, and uh, that's that, that as well as the uh, 16, 16th Street Baptist 
church in is that right? In, That's right. In Birmingham, uh, the bombing of uh, you know of the church that resulted in the death of uh, the four girls, and as well um, the sit-ins that were going on in Tennessee. So mm-hmm. she talks about three different states. Um, but right, the Mecca Evers is the boiling point, you know, right. uh, for her for all the work um, that he was doing at that time. Um, but she was intentionally so. Not only was she sort of referencing that, she was intentional in terms of the use of the song for performance sake. So she went to perform this in front of uh, ten thousand odd people um, at the conclusion of the second march in mm. Selma oh, okay. um, as a sort of motivation, uh, you know, for those people who are on the ground doing that work. Right. Well, I like how it ends. You don't have to live next to me. Just give me my equality. <laughs> That's right. right, right. Uh, as Phil Oak said at the beginning of the show, uh, you, uh, you, you like um, uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, black people as long as they don't live next to you. So <laughs> right, we, right. We, we bookended the show uh, uh, perfectly that way. Uh, that's got to be our show. I, I know it was fast. I apologize. These are fun shows. We'll do it again, of course. That's right. Uh, another episode of uh, The Sounds of Resistance with Rasul Moat. Thanks uh, to Thomas Frank, who provided our lead in via assistant producer Rob Schoon. Our, uh, and this is, again, our Sa- Sounds of Resistance series with Rasul Rasul Moat. This is Entertainment in Action. Um, a reminder that our Interchange listening party, con- party continues at Farm Bloomington. There's still time to toast many times to Interchange and WFHB. Cardinal Spirits has donated vodka, gin, and coffee liqueur. Um, let's see. I also would like to thank Interchange's underwriters, Uptown Cafe and Smithville Fiber. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. More necessary than ever.